After years of bitterness, betrayal, and brutality, it all came down to this, the title unification match of 1928. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Welcome back. Welcome to you. Welcome to me. I'm glad to be back. Are you glad we're back? Somebody has to be glad about something somewhere at some time. What am I talking about? What's happening? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a booker, a storyteller, if you will. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am here with the Nero to my Caligula. That means we're a lot of fun, but you don't want us in charge of anything. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Better than my dad. <laughs> yes. Yes, Shakespearean, old chap. Welcome, nerds, to the Hippodrome Express. We've actually upgraded. We are no longer a, you know, TARDIS bus kind of gimmick. It's now the 2.0. We are now a time-traveling pirate ship, darling. Yes! It gets wilder every single gosh darn time. And speaking of every time, if this is your first time, if this is your first listen, your first experience, your first download to this show, thank you. We're, we're glad you're here. But if you are not familiar with the era of the 1920s in pro wrestling whatsoever, hit pause. Start downloading at the Stanislaw Zabisco episode, or at least the Ed Lewis Part 1 because we're pretty deep into this long-form storyline covering the, the development of professional wrestling in the early 20s, the late teens, now into the mid-20s. So there might be a lot going on that you go, who's this? Why are they doing this? Huh? What? Huh? You know, kind of having the, you know, grandpa escaped from the home experience, confusion, turning into anger. To avoid all that, kind of start a little bit at the beginning and catch up. But if you know these people, if you know names like Joe Stetcher, Ed Strangler-Lewis, Stanislaus Abisko, Jump right into the deep end with us. The water's fine, and I think we're going to have a fun little pool party here today. I appreciate you keeping the metaphorical pirate ship on the ocean thread going, darling. Yes, we are about to sail the high seas of pro wrestling's 20s into the eye of the storm. And if, you, if you're caught up, you know where we are. We have just concluded the year 1926. We're now moving into 1927. We have gotten past the drama of the Zabisco screw job, the, the war with uh, Joe Stesher on the outside trying to scheme against the Sandow group to get the belt. Well, he schemed, he double-crossed, he has the championship, and now it's the Sandow group with Ed Lewis on the outside looking in, a taste of their own medicine, if you will, and frankly, I don't think they liked it. Well, I think there's a lot of factors, as you guys know if you followed the entire thread, but I think if you were to boil it down to one variable of where they lost control of the game was the fact that the, the, what was best for business started to be superseded by the egos at the top. Egos of, not, I mean, frankly, of Strangler Lewis. He didn't want to drop the belt at what was very clearly the right time. And that allowed for basically a bunch of fuckery. Yep, sometimes you can get in the way of everyone else, and if you try hard enough, you can even get in the way of yourself. Because, yeah, they did paint themselves into a corner. They kept the belt on Ed Lewis past the expiration date, and by doing that, they killed all of the challengers on the inside of their organization. They had killed Tootsmont. The Stanislaw Zabisco had been run over far too many times. All these men were now kind of uh, uh, unqualified in a kayfabe sense of holding the title. They were not a realistic challenger in storyline. So it made a lot of sense and actually might have saved wrestling and at least made it a lot more exciting when Zabisco double-crossed Lewis and Sandow and more or less handed the belt over to Joe Stetcher. And at the start of 1927, Joe Stetcher was a working, a defending, a very active champion. And on January 7th, Joe Stetcher defended his title with a big win over Nick Lutz in Philadelphia. The important part of this card on the undercard is Ray Steele, real name Pete Sauer, beating Jim Londos. These two men were working for the Stetchers, had great chemistry, and this set the stage for the two men having a main event level rivalry years later. 
and wrestling was now starting to become a very different place. With regional promoters carving out booking territories, everyone wanted title matches on a regular schedule in their towns. Making the champion's schedule much heavier than it once would have been, no longer would it be weeks of hype with fake training camps in the city like a legitimate combat sport would have. Now there was too much demand and too much money at stake for that. The champ now had to be on the road for four or five matches every single week, and that means shorter matches, that means fewer, you know, three-hour broadways, because this guy has five dates a week to match in various cities, so it's train ride, match, train ride, match, train ride, match, maybe a nap. And that's a much different lifestyle than what they were used to. So he was like the Industrial Revolution Ric Flair on a train, basically. Very much so, because you know, you, as people who have been listening to this know, it would be like, oh, Ed Lewis versus this guy. So we're going to go to this town, and we're going to have a training camp, and we're going to be giving demonstrations of our skill to hype up the ticket sellers, which is a throwback to the old Carney way of doing things. This is a very Farmer Burns-era plan, a very Farmer Burns era plot. You know, same thing that Gotch would do because back in those days, you were not zipping across the country nonstop. You were doing like one big money match, you know, every couple weeks. So you could kind of lean into the bullshit because the priority was selling tickets in that town, in that state. And also the betting money was paramount. So you had to like demonstrate your badassery in order yeah. to get people to bet on you. So one way or the other, you know, somebody was cleaning up on the bets, but now bets are off the table. Bets are no longer a factor. You can get across the country a lot faster. So the money had to be made that way. Yeah, it, it basically was like a unified loop or a tour. Same thing with like a band, you know, it became more of that than a bunch of like how we would think of the, the, the schedule of individual prize fighters fighting careers as we know them now. It's much more, it was like the start of, you know, taking taking the rock star shit on the road. I want to know what it was like if Stetcher had like his own sort of like, you know how guys get their own tour bus or whatever. I bet he had like his own Lex Express like suite on the train. I bet that was a, I bet he had some lit train parties. Ooh, that's a thing I wish I knew more about. Probably not. He seemed like a bit of a square. And one match early in 1927 that caught my eye, it was in the New York Times on February 15th. Renthrop taken a hospital. Stetcher is arrested. Stetcher threw Charles Renthrop of Little Rock to the floor in Chattanooga, hitting his head and knocking him out. He was taken to the hospital and Stetcher was arrested. So I can now declare this to be a gimmick. We've seen this happen too many times with Stetcher, and I'm not sure whose idea it was, but it really became a Stetcher hallmark in this era. We keep seeing him hurt somebody in a match. Sometimes it's to avoid the person taking a direct pin. So they get hurt, they get injured, and then they get taken to the hospital, and the cops come and arrest Stetcher and hold him in custody until the other guy is okay. Yeah, and that's one of the, like, keep in mind, guys, back then, you it was the... The match you'd be, what you just did the night before is brand new and fresh. There's no internet. There's no, unless somebody called their buddy in the next town or literally drove to the next town, no one there knows what you just did. So it's like playing the same act over and over again. And I bet he got really good and convincing at it too. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's such a weird concept and I love it because it makes Stetcher seem incredibly dangerous, but at the same time sympathetic because then the, the paying you know, the paying audience can be like, oh, they keep, the cops keep harassing Stetcher. He's such a good guy. He's just so good at wrestling that people get hurt with him because he's so dominant. And the cops keep hassling this guy to almost give him that, you know, Dillinger-esque totally. folk hero type of vibe. And is, a, you know, an early example of ACAB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a cut print, Marty. No, I mean, or like, you know, like a Stone Cold kind of thing. Because here's the thing. That's how you edge it. That's how you soften it. Because... Then the angle goes from, like, he's Ivan Drago, like, if he dies, he dies, to, like, he's so effective in the ring that it's not his fault that he almost killed everybody he's in there with. The police, like, it probably got him a lot of sympathy because and it made him just look that much more badass and less, like, malevolent, you know what I'm saying? 
Exactly. And it turned him into a very sympathetic baby face, kind of, like I said, a bit of a folk hero because people had been used to the shittiness of the Ed Lewis years where he was a pure heel, but his fire had burned out. And, you know, sometimes a white meat baby face just isn't the way to go. So it makes all the sense in the world to do a little bit of spicing on the, uh, on the, on the white meat baby face to kind of give him a little, a, a little bit of flavor, a little bit of a folk hero, uh, you know, folk hero hot sauce. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I say it works. And while Stetcher was the main eventing, champion in a different city every night, Ed Lewis was also bouncing between Chicago and Boston, working the same tired-out matches he'd been doing over the last few years. On February 28th, he beat Mike Romano there for the eighth time in that city alone. <sighs> you might be saying, wait, I thought that Romano went with the Stetchers, and... There was a lot more openness with the undercard talent going back and forth at this point, and even meeting for a, quote, unification match between Lewis and Stetcher, hoping to put that together that year. So those meetings were happening at this point. There was open communication on a business level, so it was really no longer an if this would happen, it's a when and how. So let me ask you, do you think that at any point, because... Up until the the double cross, Sandow pulling the strings behind everything was practically a perfect strategist. And then he lost the ball, and he hasn't really taken any shots to do anything. Like I was expecting a big, a big strategic comeback. And I just wonder why he is hanging with Lewis so hard, man. Well, it's a couple of things. It is, in one sense, a, you know, he was short-term. His strategy was perfect so long as it kept working, I guess is the way to put it, where he had a brilliant idea. He had a brilliant structure. He had a brilliant everything. But it just kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like the, you know, Bischoff, NWO type thing where it's a brilliant idea. But if you hang on to it too long, everything collapses around it because you built everything around it. Everything was built about yeah. Lewis. Everything was built around this. And then you, by the time, you know, maybe you get so deep into things, you go, oops, we kind of fucked this up. We've now made too many enemies on the outside. Things yes. are not good on the inside. And as all things do in their time, it fell apart. Yeah, and you, instead of letting the organic timetable and the, the fluid thing of, like you said, keeping the belt on Lewis past the expiration date and not passing it organically when they probably should have, created the domino effect that got the guy in the ring that could get double-crossed and get punked like a bitch. Exactly. And now they were trying to put the pieces back together to unify the title. But the problems were Lewis and Sandow wanting to be the promoters, or at least co-promoters, and Tony Stetcher having hesitations after Pesek shot on Joe Stetcher in Los Angeles the previous year. It was promoter Tom Pack who started pushing to get the match made because he knew it would be a goldmine. Pack met with Billy Sandow and pitched Lewis working with the Stetchers, having a match versus Pesek under Pack's promotion. Sandow had been losing money ever since Abisko double-crossed them and gave the title to the Stetchers. So he agreed to the arrangement to work with the regional promoters like Pack, Ludaro, and the rest. So they moved forward with the first step of the planned and announced Ed Lewis versus John Pesek match for the fall. So Sandow is now depowered. He's been losing money left and right. And now all the power is going to these regional promoters. And Sandow at least isn't a stubborn jerk about this. He realizes if I'm going to get back on top, if I'm bringing the power back to me, whether he's realizing he now needs to work with these people in the long term, or he's just scheming to get the power back and bring it back to, uh, you know, under his sole control, who can say he's not around to interview. I don't have a Ouija board, so we can't use that. So he was having to kind of humble himself. He was having to work with outsiders in a way he wasn't comfortable. And they were starting to put the pieces back together to kind of unify the title and bring all the talent almost under one roof again. And the truth is they need him because here's what it was. It's like, I don't know, the, the, the Ragnar on Vikings, right? Like he created this new thing. He was literally the guy who, who set all of this archetype into play. And all of these guys that were envious and could not hang with him, like, packed it together, overthrew his power, but are basically 
Like, it's like they took over the, the same thing and they can't get it past any further because they weren't the guys who actually invented the thing. So now they're at this point where they're stuck. They've hit this wall of, okay, we got it as far this far. They haven't really done anything other than continue what it already was. They haven't, other than spreading it out, they just kind of copied his formula. So it's like, if it's going to go any further, they need the, they need the Tesla, man. And in this plan, the first step was Ed Lewis versus John Pesek under Tom Pack, and Pesek's reputation was not exactly sterling at this point. Pesek didn't wrestle for the rest of 1926 after shooting on Stetcher to get the title in a double cross. He somehow maintained a relationship with the Stetchers. Maybe it was respect for his shoot skills. Maybe they had done enough dirty maneuvering that game respects game, as the kids say. Maybe they knew he was still a dangerous asset to point in the right direction. Maybe it's just because they were friends for years and didn't know how to process it. People are weird and I don't understand them. Collier's Eyes published that the Stetchers held $21,000 of Pesek's money and held it hostage for the sake of forcing Pesek to do business in the future. Tom Pax saw Pesek as a salvageable star when no one else would touch him. Pax would help manage his career in St. Louis and matched him up against Jim Londos on January 27th. Londos was also having a rough time of things, having been arrested for swindling a mark out of $12,000 in a bet on one of Londos's matches. This was a big time no-no in the business, having pushed the gambling scams, once the bedrock of pro wrestling earning, out of the wrestling shows. Remember that betting was illegal, and the business as a whole steered clear of it to avoid the work sport to fall under investigation. So what a bit to unpack there. So we've got Pesek rumored to have his money held hostage by the Stetchers to force him to do business. Tom Pack is trying to salvage it, put him in there with Londos. Londos gets in trouble for swindling an idiot but out of a shitload of money by getting him to bet on pro wrestling. In 1927, imagine having the audacity to come out and say, I am so stupid that I bet on pro wrestling. Yeah, first of all, what are we even doing here if swindling a mark out of money is wrong? Like, that's literally, <laughs> like, that's that's our ethos, right? Well, it's, like, not, it's not even that it's wrong, it's just illegal. It's one of those things where it's like... We ethically have no problem with this. We just don't want to get the law involved. Yeah, and then the other side of it is I understand what's going on with the sort of relationship after the double cross because what it comes down to, it's like Xerxes and Leonidas. They are in control. They have the chessboard. They have dominance. This is the one, you know piece that was able to do damage to them it's like you can try to like get rid of them or you the you know a higher level strategist that takes their ego out of it is gonna be like i want that on my team if something can beat me and i'm in and i'm winning the game i want it on my team you know so i think that completely makes sense and it shows that they're there to do business and not follow the ego that's the difference and for whatever reason, of their problems, their issues, their legal quandaries, Pesek and Londos put on a match that went four goddamn hours and was reportedly amazing. Pesek won the first and third fall to win the match, and the 10,000 fans loved every second of it. So having Pesek beat Londos, who was huge at St. Louis, seems like a weird choice. Pack had hinted at Londos versus Stetcher, but Londos was now bad PR, and he needed to build a Pesek in that city before his match against Ed Lewis. Tom Pack is an amazing strategist. We've seen him already yeah. be putting together truly amazing things that are a little out of the box because he did have a good sense of, you know, we can't put Londos in the title picture now, or we can't put him in this position because he now has this baggage because when his name comes up, swindles and worked matches and ripoffs are what people in the press will bring up. We have to have somebody who instead is going to be brought up as a savage motherfucker who will tear people apart whether you want them to or not. Pesic is a caged animal, if you will, a tiger man. And he is the perfect foil to build up another star, to build up uh, a contender, to make it seem legitimate. Because once again... Pesek has proven that you can't trust him in a title shot after he went after Stetcher. 
but you could at least use him to build up somebody else on the way to a title shot. Yeah, I mean, the fact is they know it's like anything else, right? You see it in so, you know, again, in sports. If that guy was on the rival team and kicking our ass for a number of years and he's a free agent, we'll sign him. We want that working for us. They know what an asset he is. They, they're keeping it about business. They do have a long-term relationship. And it's, you know, if they can turn that weapon into an asset, that is for the great, greater good of the, of the company. I, something that I was actually talking to my pops about. Because I was like, how are people so interested in wrestling for these long matches? And he said, you got to understand, back then, the most exciting thing that people could possibly see is a baseball game. Oh, yeah. it's You You do have to scale things to yeah. expectations. Where it was like, do you want to go watch a four-hour, you know, even like further back in time in the 1800s when it would be boring as shit. It's like, well, what was the option? Stay home and watch a fire burn? Go out to the farm and watch a mule shit? Feed it and wait for it to shit again? These are your options. So, yeah, a four-hour wrestling match is your day. It's the most exciting thing that's going to happen to you in the course of a month. Yeah, and comparatively speaking, if baseball is sort of the measuring stick of what is exciting public entertainment at that time, wrestling match the length of a baseball game now seems completely exciting. Yeah, and you think about how many times you'll sit down and watch four hours of some dumb Netflix show that you barely care about, and then make that the only option you had for entertainment. It's going to blow your mind. Yeah, totally. So yeah, wrestling, nerds! And here's something I genuinely felt a little bit bad about. Uh, March 31st, New York Times article, quote, Too old to wrestle, board tells Zabisco. The Chicago Athletic Commission tells Stanislaus that he's too old. Zabisco admits to exaggerating his age to lean into the old man of the ring gimmick and is only 48. The board doesn't believe him, says he's over 50, and will not license him to wrestle in Illinois. Well, you know what? Get Randy Couture's ass down there and ask one <laughs> of them bald-headed suits to come down and show them... Show me why a guy in his 50s can't wrestle. Yeah, to be fair, it's 1927, so Randy Couture was only in his 30s. Yeah, that... <laughs> April 7th, 1927, Ed Lewis versus John Pesek at the St. Louis Coliseum. Tom Pax actually moved the main event ahead of the semi-main in case it went too long and the crowd of almost 9,000 people potentially got tired. Smart move, make sure the audience is going to be hot for the, uh, the big match. Yeah. Strangler won the first fall at the one-hour, three-minute mark with a headlock. Pesek landed a flying mare off of an arm lock at 29 minutes for the second. And in the third, Lewis wore down the smaller Pesek and secured a head scissor and arm bar in 7.51. So it does keep everybody looking competitive. You did have, you know, going the full three falls. Pesek did the right thing and made Lewis, uh, you know, look like the star, made him look like a legitimate threat because Pesek beat the golden boy in Londos. Yep. Lewis beat the, the, the terrifying challenger in Pesek. So it does kind of have an organic feel building him up for a title match against Stetcher. And it also, it, it, it makes me wonder if they're trying to like rehab the public image of Strangler a little bit. Like, he's still going to be the heel going in when they build him up for this main event, but he's kind of softening the public image where he's maybe accepted. They don't loathe him. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's also important to not bring somebody in and immediately give them the title match. Yeah. Because that gives away the game and also builds resentment, and people will be like, oh, fuck this. You know, this guy's just immediately being given the shot. This guy's immediately being given the title back. It gives away the game. So this, whether he's working heel or not, does create him as a bit of a sympathetic comeback kid. It makes it seem yeah. legitimate because this guy beat this guy and then he beat this guy. Totally. So it makes sense, storyline-wise, that he gets the title match. And speaking of title matches, this one was kind of almost... It made me feel good to read. On April 11th, Vladik Zabisco gets title shot at Joe Stetcher because Vladik had been shut out of the Sandow group but now gets back to title contention under the Stetcher group. The importance of freshening up the title picture in wrestling is on full display because 
Ed Lewis really made his name off of a lot of matches with Vladik Zabisco. Vladik Zabisco went with Curly, got shut out of the title contention with uh, Sandow and Lewis. But now that the titles was Stetcher, Vladik can be a star again. Yeah, it's one of those situations where the guys in charge and those issues prevented this person who is considered a viable contender. It's like Fedor in, in UFC. The car, like if we we never saw that, but this is a, a potential guy that everyone thinks could beat anyone at the top, and he's been on the outside. So yeah, it creates a. There's this viable lion that's been pacing on the outside, so that's a good use of bringing him back in the fold. Yeah, and it apparently went well, according to the New York Times. Stetcher conquers Vladik Zabisco. Nebraskan throws opponent with a backdrop after 44 minutes, 57 seconds. So at the 71st Armory Building in front of 6,000 fans, Vladik shrugs off the scissor hold three times and gets surprised with a backdrop. So they made Vladik look very strong by breaking out of Stetcher's signature move, only to get surprised with a move that you know Stetcher didn't break out very often. So it made it a come-from-behind win against a bigger opponent for the champ. Vladik still looks like a badass for shrugging off the scissor hold. Yeah, and he's coming in from the outside. And there's a good example of a guy stepping in right to a title shot, right? Because then they're using it in the right way because you don't want him to step in and win. That gives away the game. But if he steps in, now you've got the, the guy you're building up. He's beat the guy that beat the guy. Now you got the guy from the outside coming in that the guy beat. It's it's all aiming to the same, same end game. On June 2nd, reports that Tootsmont was done with Sandow. Might have been rumors from the infighting behind the scenes because Mont continued to lose to Lewis on the regular. So there's a lot of things going on the behind the scene between Sandow and Mont, and it was kind of to bleed in the storyline, and the reality was starting to bleed into the press, but we'll hear more about that in the future. On June 9th, Pesic beat by Londos in St. Louis. For whatever reason, Pesic was jobbing for most of the year, possibly as penance for his double cross against Stetchers, because the Stet, even though the regional promoters were handling so much of the bookings, the Stetchers held the title, they held the power, and if they went, you know what, Pesic, it's time to shovel shit for another year, he's going to be shoveling shit for an entire year. And another uh, one, one trick with, like, heating people up when you're building them up, uh, Kevin Sullivan taught me is the art of cooling guys off, and that is... He got the big loss out of him to establish the next contender. Now let him go on a losing streak so that it wasn't like one loss and he's right in the fold. He can have this low dip so that then if he jobs for a while and then it's like he finds his, you know, whatever his missing mojo was and he comes back on this hot streak, that's a way to cycle people out that, that's kind of a lost start. So maybe they're going that way with him too, on top of the penance. Who can say? But either way, that's uh, that was his position for most of the year. And in July, a really wacky story unfolded. Bill Demetrial had borrowed $5,000 from Billy Sandow with Demetrial's house as collateral. Demetrial clearly couldn't pay and decided to go to the press and claim that Sandow held that loan over his head to keep him from beating Lewis twice in 1924. And according to the New York Times, publicly stated that, quote, unless a wrestler listened to the dictation of the trust, he could not obtain matches. So the dirty laundry got aired to the press, and the governor of Illinois ordered an investigation, canceled big shows, and threatened to ban wrestling entirely. What a, like, Godfather 2, I'm going to testify to Congress about the existence of the mafia betrayal bullshit is that. You know what? That's the kind of bullshit you expect from the kind of guy that loses his house for $5,000. Well, to scale, to scale, that was a lot of money back in those days. But what a snitch thing to do to go, oh, I, I on good faith, took a loan. I put up collateral. I can't pay up. Uh, hey, everyone, wrestling's fake. And this, or not even saying wrestling's fake. He's coming out and saying, wrestling's real, but... I'm not allowed to beat this guy because he's blackmailing me over my, you know, to keep me you know, living in my own house. It's like, what? What kind of wacky goddamn thing? This is the sort of shit that only would happen in wrestling or possibly the mob. Somebody needs to call David Schultz. Sandow, quote, 
produced a clipping before the committee showing that Demetrial had been indicted in Chicago in 1913 for defrauding a man out of $4,000 by means of a fake wrestling match in Toledo. Sandow testified that Demetrial had been involved in crooked matches in Nashville and Atlanta 13 or 14 years ago. So, again, it's what a crazy thing. It's like almost everything's a known work. It's a constantly exposed sport. Yet, in front of the fucking government, Sandow's busting out articles claiming that Demetrial's a fake wrestler, not a real wrestler like we are. What a fucking worker. Oh, yeah, so it's, yeah, exactly. It's Demetrial saying wrestling is real, but I can't beat the champ because of this loan over my head. And Sandow goes, yes, wrestling is real, but here's proof this guy's a faker. So it's just a doubling down. It's like an improv yes and fest, and it's goddamn hilarious. And on July 1st, Ed Lewis, Billy Sandow, and Bill Demetrial appeared before a legislative committee, and Lewis did what always works in these situations. He cut a goddamn promo about how he wasn't afraid of Demetrial or any man and would wrestle Demetrial anywhere at any time. And Demetrial didn't take the bait that clearly would have led to a beating. So the committee ended their investigation right there. Demetrial said, he's holding this money over my head so I wouldn't beat Strangler. Strangler on the stand cuts a promo about he'll fight him anytime. Fight him right now. And Demetrial goes, oh, I would die in that situation because of all the shit I've pulled. So uh, I'm going to go home now. And the government said, Whatever, man. We have to go talk about potholes or minority voting or something. I don't know. Whatever whatever it is they were doing at that time. But what a goddamn spectacle. That is why Strangler is one of the goats, though, man. Because he literally was like, I can prove in the court of law right now that this fool is lying. Listen here, jabroni. You and me. And like, and he literally, like, promoted on this guy. He got... He basically... Challenge the guy to a fight to get charges dropped. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's that's it's, pretty it's, remarkable. Yeah, only in wrestling would somebody be like, "I got this." What are you gonna do? I'm gonna go get angry and say I would fight this guy. That's the only. Time that's the way to get me out of court. Yeah, let me go to Congress and tell them that I'll fight him right now. That'll solve this legal matter. See, so next time. Everyone in Chongo's camp that always tries to like caution Chongo to like de-escalate. Remember, remember this story, nerds. August third, John Pesek lost to Paul Jones in a number one contender match. Los Angeles Daily News quote: Jones defeats John after trip into basements. The two men split falls, and in the third, Pesek was thrown into the tunnel entrance to the dressing room. Jones gave Pesek a spin, and the Bohemian hurtled through the ropes and down out of sight into the wrestler's tunnel. It took more than a minute to fish him out, and when he came, he was comparatively easy prey for Jones. So, what a fucking weird thing. It was like an, a spin and threw him through the ropes, down like the tunnel in the, in, the, in the auditorium. So he just disappears down there, out of sight from the... Uh, out of sight from the audience, and in my cartoon brain, I just imagine, like, trash can, you know, clanks and just a lot of noise, like Bugs Bunny just dropped Yosemite Sam down a hole. You know, crash, bam, boom, bam, bam. Meow. It just, and then he, I, I picture he finally, like, staggers out wearing a trash can lid on his head, just all dancey and loopy, and gets pinned in 30 seconds. I feel it might have been close, just not as dramatic. See, you know what's funny is that, like, I pretty much thought the exact same thing. I'm like, okay, so they go back there, and this is probably, like, the audience, this is probably how I felt the first time I played N64, and you could, like, brawl into the back on uh, WrestleMania 2000. But, like, you know, like, I just see him, like, Scooby-Dooing back and forth, where he's chasing him from one closet, he's got oh, the yeah. broom, the next one he's, like, got the thing on his head, and then there's some guy in the audience that some young cartoonist is like, I have an idea. And on the same show, speaking of weird things, on the same show, Jim Londos beat Alex Aberg, and no, not that Alex Aberg, he'd been dead for years, with a, quote, a series of headlocks which had Alex as goofy as a Christmas turkey, whatever the hell that means. But from now on, I'm going to use the term as goofy as a Christmas turkey, and nobody's going to be able to stop me. And you know why? Because you're as goofy as a Christmas turkey. Yeah, well, um, I, I guess... I don't even know what to say to that, man. That's one of those, like, you got me by the gullet. I feel like uh, we could talk to a 
uh, a bird expert, and we find out that a being is a as goofy as a Christmas turkey is, is like a distant cousin of a silly goose. Or maybe like it's a reference to your drunkle Greg that had a wild turkey problem. Ooh, it's possible. On September 27th, Jack Dempsey lost his rematch against champion Gene Tunney in Chicago. This is the fight with the infamous long count. Tunney was beating the brakes off of Dempsey for six rounds. Then in the seventh, Dempsey rallied and dropped Tunney. Dempsey wouldn't go to a neutral corner immediately, and the referee was arguing with him and didn't start the count until he did so. Thus, Tenney got a long count that allowed him to get to his feet and continue. Tunney went back to whipping Dempsey's ass for the rest of the fight, but history will always remember the long count that cost Dempsey another title win. Steve Yohei pointed out in his excellent biography of Lewis that Dempsey and Lewis were very similar. Both were marketing creations by brilliant and manipulative managers. Both were heel champions who became beloved legends after they retired. So, yeah, I, I always heard about that fight, and I really never looked too much into it. But, yeah, Tunney was beating his ass left and right. He gets floored. Dempsey keeps arguing with the referee. It's very pro-wrestling in a way. But... You know, it was, a, it was a standing count, but it probably went to 15 to 20 because Dempsey wouldn't listen to the goddamn referee, which makes it his own fault, but it becomes one of those great sporting what-ifs. See, here's the thing about that specific fight. For up until that, and I might be, it might not have been the very first Dempsey fight, but maybe one of the first fights after this rule change, prior to that, for the majority of Dempsey's career, there was not a neutral corner during the standing eight count. So he would literally, if you go watch old footage of Jack Dempsey, he would wait behind the guy as he was standing up. And as the guy would start to stand up, he would basically punch him from behind the head. And if I recall, that was the first or second fight after that neutral corner rule change. And that was sort of the bone of contention was that referee trying to enforce that rule that... That was like Dempsey's bread and butter. Once he got him down, a lot of his KOs were when they were getting up, he'd be behind him and like club him from the side of the head. So that was, a lot of people think that that was the reason of that count. And all I can see in my head is the Charlie Chaplin comedy boxing. <laughs> but that's not right. That's not how history works. That's not how anything works. On November 18th, John Pesek versus Nick Lutz ends in DQ when Pesek continuously tries to throw Lutz out of the ring. As covered in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Pesek disqualified for rough tactics. 3,000 Philadelphia fans let their displeasure be known. So Pesek, he's not necessarily losing by pin. He's not losing by submission. They're finding ways to make him lose without him, quote, losing. But you can still tell he's still on the shit list because... He's still losing. Yeah, man. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in Philly. Like, you're booing a guy for being too vicious in a combat sport? What's wrong with you, Philly? That's not your brand. December 17th, New York Times article, quote, No Matt Champion, says State Board, does not recognize any title holder. It notifies Illinois Boxing Commission. Because of the now long-standing title chaos between Lewis and Stetcher, states with athletic commissions were having trouble justifying the wild ways of wrestling. The Illinois Commission sought advice from the more established New York Commission, who declared that they don't recognize any champion at this point, which can be a little problematic when you're uh, trying to book something long-term. Yeah, and it's just, it's, it, I think it's more than anything just the ripple effect of the sour taste in New York's mouth from all the bullshit from Muldoon and everything else where that became the staging ground of like the ideological battle of old man keep wrestling off you know stay off my lawn pro wrestling versus what the what it was evolving into in New York was probably just sick of their shit oh absolutely and rightfully so but things were going to get unified. On December 21st, 1927, Ed Lewis and Joe Stetcher signed contracts to face off in St. Louis on February 20th, 1928 for promoter Tom Pax. The show was advertised as a shoot, which again is super fucking weird. Lewis spent January doing layup matches against Wayne Munn and Toots Mont. Stetcher, on the other hand, was being a weirdo. He'd been a very active traveling champion since winning the title from Stanislaw Zabisco at the end of May 1925. But now he was withdrawn and moody. There was talk of him retiring. 
He'd already quit wrestling twice, so maybe it was time to retire for good, or at least for a third time. Was he worn down from years of high-level activity? Was his confidence completely shattered by being legitimately manhandled and beaten by Pesic? Was it the mental health concerns that plagued his entire adult life? As someone with bipolar disorder, I can verify how much that takes out of your stamina, physical, emotional, and social. So it could be the any, it could be all. So it could be a situation where he has just been on the go, 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 which can wear down even a normal-brained human being. He also was constantly convinced that he was the toughest man on two legs. Pesek took that away from him. That's another blow to the psyche. So it could be exhaustion. It could be his self-image is shattered. Could be a lot of things. But either way, he was slowing things down and starting to be a very strange person, even to those closest to him. Yeah, you know... Um... Just because we didn't know about it doesn't mean CTE wasn't a thing back then. And the way that he performed and getting thrown around, it is like it probably, you know, brain damage, dementia shit, you know? Yeah, I mean, nobody at the time knew how hard wrestling was on the brain. How those bumps, those slams, those throws, those blows to the head, all of that stacks up in a very unhealthy way, which science now knows all about, but back then it was just like, oh, he has a concussion. Well, he's only going to work eight matches this week. Yeah, I mean, it was very, you know, it was so much more immeasurable what the damage is to your brain versus like, I broke my arm or I dislocated my kneecap. The brain, it's like, you know, back then, I mean, even in my lifetime in high school football, it's like, oh, you can follow my finger, like, you can say your name, you can go back in the game, you know? Yeah, we're both from the same generation of the early, kind of early-ish MMA days when we would spar hard at least twice a week. Concussions probably constantly. Yeah, where I, like, I remember being in, like, it'd be like, oh, it's Monday night or Wednesday morning, which were the main sparring classes for uh, for kickboxing and MMA, and it was like, cool, I'm going to be in there with a guy who's on a pay-per-view in three weeks, and it's just going to be a fuck of one. 100% 100% firefight, which is dumb as hell, and makes a lot of sense, as I always make the joke of why I sometimes walk by my house without walking up to the door. Yeah, and I paid about half of my house off with money I earned from being Rampage, Chick Congo, Tito's, and, and Bisbing's paid sparring partner for all those camps. I got paid and made a living off of getting punched by those motherfuckers in the head for money. So let me tell you, man, it is... Uh, it is a brutal, and you know this, there's brutal ripple effects, longer-term effects with taking a lot of head trauma. As you guys can tell from listening to us ramble. Oh, yeah, we are now so dumb that we are doing a wrestling podcast. We are not. We... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 see, the CTE, man, that's, that's, what, that's, the, that's the new D.A.R.E. commercial for... for you know, not letting your kid play football right there. But, uh, you know, depression, self-confidence, health, whatever the reason, he was slowing things down. He did have this match in him on February 20th, 1928 in St. Louis. The match everyone had wanted for years was underway. The mayor, two senators, judges, and other officials came to watch. Ringside tickets were expensive as hell at $25, which was a lot in 1928. Dedicated trains brought fans from Chicago and Kansas City. Offers for radio and film were turned down by Tom Pax. I assumed this was to offer no alternative to the live experience for the sake of ticket sales. Also could be whoever was going to lose the match didn't want it being paraded around for their own self-preservation um, Storyline, business-wise, reputation-wise, whatever, who knows, but either way, this was the only way to see it. The match was two out of three falls, no time limit. A foul would end the fall, but not the match. Sounds like the recipe for one of Stetcher and Lewis's endless boring draws from years past, which I assume hovered in the back of fans and reporters' minds as things got underway. Lewis was in the best shape he'd been in for years and weighed 227 pounds to Stetcher's 225, so very close in weight. You know, Stetcher was bigger, Lewis was smaller, everybody was looking good, and according to the New York Times, Lewis was escorted by the police to the ring, I assume to keep him safe in St. Louis, where Stetcher was seen as the true champ. In the St. Louis Globe Democrat, Tom Pack stated, quote, 
Both men are in the finest of condition, and they are evenly matched. Of course I want to see the best man win, and I think it would be impossible to say that either one has an edge. I look for the most interesting match the two men have ever had. End quote. And I assume he said this with a straight face. I very notice notice the specific of the language. You said this is hovering in the fans of the back mind, these Borfest. I suspect it's going to be the most interesting match these two have ever had. It's very this guy's sharp, man. And the first fall was very unusual for both men. Both wrestled very conservatively, with them spending much of their time on the feet working for an advantage and a takedown. At 2 hours, 16 minutes, Lewis took Stetcher down and used an arm lock to pin him. Tony Stetcher threw a fit, claiming it was a fast count. It was boring, or as the aforementioned New York Times piece claimed, the match was so slow and dull that, quote, newspaper writer snored in peaceful sleep in his chair at the ringside. <laughs> Damn. I think that might be more to do with, you know... Maybe he didn't get to sleep at home because he's a, a beat writer for pro wrestling. But um, Chango digresses. I mean, to, you know, the fact is, if you got two champs, the two best, they're going to take their time and and feel each other out. No one's going to want to give up that initial advantage on the chessboard. So it makes sense strategically, not necessarily for entertainment value, but you're definitely going to have a feeling out process that first fall. And in the second fall, Stetcher sprawled out of Lewis's clinch, got his back, and used the same armbar pin that cost him the first fall, holding Lewis down for the win in just 56 seconds. You heard me right. Under a minute. 56 seconds. Wow. And it's a good thing that the second fall was fast, because the third fall began after 1 a.m. So this crowd clearly was uh, kind of hoping for a fast one, and they got one. So, coming out into the third, Lewis was on the offensive, trying body holds to get Stetcher down. He succeeded and got an arm lock and was using it to push Stetcher's shoulders to the canvas. Stetcher bridged and tried to roll out. He managed to get his legs into the ropes, but the ref counted the pin. He didn't see the legs in the ropes and declared Lewis the winner and new champion at 12 minutes, 50 seconds. The crowd rushed the ring, yelling at the ref for missing Stetcher's feet being in the ropes. And I will say this, that's how you fucking book it. I was going to say, man, it smells like a sand out of me, bro. You left the baby facing out, right, where he got beat and you got the title change you needed, but he, got, he has this viable out that he didn't get beat fair and square, and the people were behind it because they were, t like, that was well, that was good shit, man. Yeah, because you have a situation where the first fall went forever. Mm -hmm. So they made up for it with a quick second. And in the third, the storytelling really kind of pays off because we did the agreed-upon title change. They did the agreed-upon keeping Stetcher looking whole. We have now reignited Ed Lewis as a champion heel because the crowd's rushing it, like calling the ref an asshole because Stetcher's feet were in the ropes, yeah. but the ref didn't see it. But it's too late now, and what can you do? So you have a serious emotional reaction from the audience. You have everybody looking strong. You have accomplished the plan of a title switch. Everybody is happy, I guess, except for the Stature fans. Well, it's like you did everything. You you accomplished the title switch, and you did so in a way that left it in doubt. If not just in doubt, but like that was, like the fans are like, it's not over. I mean, one of the coolest things that we kind of didn't pick apart, it's almost the first example of beating the guy with his own finish. To get, the, to get Lewis with the same move he got him with on the arm lock and the choke prior and then doing it back to him, it's like it's truly even at that point. So I, that was brilliant, brilliantly booked. Joe Stetcher said, quote, I have no alibis and am willing to take the results as a sportsman should. It was just the breaks of the game that it turned out as it did, but I still believe I can throw Lewis. Ed Lewis was less polished in his public statements. Quote, Stetcher is game, I'll give him that. He took a lot of punishment, but I don't think he is good enough to ever beat me. He went on to say that he wasn't obligated to give Stetcher a rematch and that he didn't win a title. He defended it. So, woo-hoo. Stetcher, a perfect babyface sportsman. Such a gentleman. Such a yes. sportsman-like man. Lewis is like, this bum had nothing for me. And also, his title claim was illegitimate. I didn't win a title. I defended the one I never lost. Mic drop. Boom. 
no friends made. Oh, yeah. Heel life, bitch. Two L's make an H. That is... And on the... Dude, the stature thing is so perfect because one thing about a true white meat baby face, no matter how bad they get fucked and get screwed and it's unfair, they don't bitch and complain about it. That's the thing that makes it heroic because obviously it's fucked over. They're getting fucked over. But the fact that he took it with class... That's where it's like, wow, you really are leaving the door open for a fantastic rematch. And Strangler, yeah, because I was going to say this whole time, he's still been claiming he's the champ this entire time. So now he just basically is like, see, I proved it. There's a lot to unpack with this match outside of the ring. Keep in mind, it took six years to put this match together, and it was masterfully booked, managed, and executed. At this point, Stetcher was run into the ground and had beaten everyone in front of him for years. Lewis had been out of the top spot for two years and was able to get heel heat again. He was also in fantastic shape, which I feel was a prerequisite of winning the title back. Joe was most likely looking for an out and was even preserved by a screw job finish that added extra heat onto the Strangler. Stetcher was reportedly paid $29,000, and Lewis was paid $19,000, which was definitely the cost of doing business to drop the title back to Lewis after years of business animosity, if not personal animosity as well. But let's talk about that first fall for a minute. It was long, boring, and not structured as a work, so two options come to mind. Since it was advertised as a shoot, they wanted the first fall to really feel like a shoot in all its terrible glory. Or possibly they agreed to split the falls, but agreed to make the first a shoot just to test each other after years of both men claiming to be the legit best. So I kind of feel that was the case. Because, again, it's like you're going to advertise something as a shoot. You're not going to drag it out too much. You want to keep the fans entertained. As always, if it's boring, it's probably real. And if it's real, it's probably boring. Yes, that's it. And you know what? It makes complete sense. <clears throat> and actually, I would bet that that's the case because, like you said, they both want to know who really is the best. They have this mechanism of having multiple falls to be able to determine that. And that's what it would be, right? Like we said, like I said, that makes sense strategically, even not entertainment-wise. But then, like, basically, all right, we're going to shoot for fall one, and then whatever the fall is, whoever needs to get the second fall to even it up going to the third fall will get it, and we'll do it with whatever move they beat them with. So it looks strong, and that's how you'd have to book it. Yeah, and I feel the less than one minute win in the middle for the second fall oh, yeah, that's... was also proof that the first was a uh, shoot. Because yes. it was Because it went so long that they probably got backstage, and the promoter's like, guys, we're, we're running get long. Yeah. We got to do this. Let's so, go home, daddy. Yeah. Yeah, take, take it home, brother. So I feel that adds more evidence to that possibility. So this is how it's gone down. And Sandow, clearly, he wanted the title. And he wanted it around Lewis's uh, waist. And wanted those championship paydays coming back into their business. But Sandow wasn't the king of the business that he had been two years earlier. The regional promoters had been working together, booking together, and held the power in the business. And probably the only promoter who hated the title switch was Jack Curley, who was in attendance. Because Curley had been outside the entire time with the uh, with the Lewis Sandow faction having the title. He was aligned with the Stetchers, but now the Stetchers were clearly going to be stepping back, stepping away from the championship, stepping away from the sport a little bit. So now he's even more on the outside than how he started. Somebody's got to be the Cleveland Browns. The next day, the New York Athletic Commission, per the New York Times, quote, Declaring its own investigation has established Hans Stanky of Germany as possessing the best title claims. The commission declared it would not recognize Lewis as champion until he had defeated Stanky. What? Stanky was a giant German wrestler imported and managed by Jack Curley, there's the giveaway right there, who was advertised as a giant who wore a size 20 collar. Stanky tried his hand at boxing with one win, but Curly steered him away from it, so Stanky, quote, laid off the game of give and take, stuck to his trade of grab and twist. What a, what a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, yeah, Stanky grab and twist. Something is Stanky in Gotham with this old chap, because I've never even heard of this cat. 
Yeah, it was a situation where Curley clearly had the ear of the Athletic yeah. Commission. The Athletic Commission is trying to keep things going as a legitimate sport, but all the screwjob bullshit, dodging, works, whatever, that was in the main events of the pro wrestling mainstream championship, New York was pretty much saying, hey, even if it's bullshit, you got to make it look respectable. So we're saying you guys can figure this out, but in New York, we're not recognizing the title until one of you beat the top guy in the state. I bet Stanky, though, was probably a bad motherfucker because my guess, Curly went out and he had to find his ace. He had to find his, you know, Brock Lesnar that he, you know, that he could be the, that's his weapon. So I'm sure this guy was fucking Oh, I'm fierce. sure he was. I'm sure he was not to be trifled with. Yeah. I'm sure he was a shooter among shooters because he was freaking imported. It was a... Big I'm Ivan bringing... Drago fucker, right? Exactly where I was going yeah, with Yeah, I this. thought, I, dude, brain share. Once the wheels were in motion for Stetcher to drop the title to Lewis, Curly pulled a Curly by loudly claiming that Stanky was the rightful contender, but Lewis and Stetcher are afraid of him. And it paid off brilliantly, though possibly accidentally. The New York Athletic Commission saw a legal athletic grievance and backed Stanky as the most legitimate claimant to the belt. Lewis, bless his heart, broke out one of my favorite insults again, according to the Olean Time Herald on February 28th, quote, Go out and get a reputation. We won't monkey with setups. Damn, I mean, that is like all-time pantheon. Go out and get a reputation. That is so just, I mean, pretentious and just, that is good shit, man. That's what I want to hear from a top heel. Lewis was still having troubles in Chicago. His match against Alex Gargoenko, billed as the European champion, was in doubt because members of the Athletic Commission, according to the Spokane Chronicle, quote, Thinks Louis Garkoenko makes look suspicious. The article, of course, brought up both the Dimitrol drama and Hans Stanky. By late March, most sports pages would state that Stanky was recognized as champion in New York, usually in context of the drama instead of backing the claim. Promoters coast-to-coast coast were lining up to book Stanky versus Lewis, led by the ever-determined Tom Pax, according to the Yonkers Herald on... March 22nd, 1928, Chicago's Joe Coffey offered $75,000 to oh. make it happen. Jesus Christ. So, because, but yeah, it's, it's the... It's, super fight. It's Yeah, exactly. It's the match that's in the media. It's the match that the Athletic Commission has more or less hyped. There's enough trash talking, bad blood, everything that makes pro wrestling great. So, of course, everybody wants to put it together. But because it's pro wrestling... You know, the old faded shooter is not going to walk into the trap of another shooter being set up by a rival bad blood totally. type of promoter. Man, I just want to point out again, Hans Stanky went back to his old trade of grab and twist. <laughs> and speaking of Chicago, the Athletic Commission continued to be disruptive to the wrestling industry by either believing it was a shoot sport or pretending to do so for optics. In March 1928, they didn't see Alex Gargoenko as title match material and doubted his claim of being a European champion. The match only took place when Lewis put down a $5,000 personal bond to have a match with the winner of a local tournament. From his first title reign, like all champions of this era, Lewis was protected by being booked against men loyal to Sandow. But in the wake of the Munn-Zabisco-Stetcher drama, this was obviously and publicly criticized. St. Louis's Tom Pax and Philadelphia's Aureliano Ray Fabiani wanted Lewis to meet, quote, legit contenders, which was to say they wanted him to work and most likely drop the bell to Jim Londos and wouldn't let Lewis wrestle in their cities otherwise. So Sandow mostly worked with men like Paul Bowser, who was willing to do business the way they wanted to do business. Steve Yohe posits that Lewis felt he made Londos and expected him to be loyal to the Sandow group and felt betrayed when Londos joined the Stetcher company after the Zabisco double cross. So Sandow is trying to bring things back to how they once were, but yeah. you can't go back. You can't take things back to the way they were. 
the old days are gone, and now the regional promoters are saying, cool, well, if you don't want to move forward and turn Lewis into a transitional champ who's, you know, he's, he's, in, he's well past his prime, he's, you know, it's like when you, once you hit your early 40s, especially in this era, it's time to give it up to the younger generation. Londos was the hot ticket. He was the big draw in those cities. And Lewis said, nope, not this pup that I made. I'm not putting him over. So the regional promoter said, cool, well, guess who's not wrestling in this city? Yeah, and it's the one thing that I don't understand is why Sandow, I mean, I get it, loyalty back in the horse that got you there the whole nine, but at some point, if the, the guy that you have at the command of the helm is going to sink the ship, I mean, at some point, Sandow's got to see that, that backing Lewis is the, the only real... Uh, negative decision he's made strategically in this whole thing was backing him too long, in my opinion. So I don't know where that element of it is, where everywhere else he's a perfect strategist and he has this blind spot. And another blind spot that would uh, cause some problems. (laughs) You mean besides the champ being blind? Another blind spot that would cause Sando problems was on March 30th, Lewis versus Tootsmont, and it's a problem and only important because it's the final time Lewis would defend his title against Tootsmont. Mont was very much on the way out. His way of doing things, his ideas, his relationship, none of it was being well respected, so the Goldust Trio was starting to collapse. Lou Darrow would work with the Sandow Lewis group because he didn't have a dog in the fight. He had a hot market and would do business with whomever was on top and would make him money. He has a genius that way. Lewis would be hot in LA for a few years, but Londos conspicuously stayed out of town when Lewis was main eventing there. In Marcus Griffin's muckraking expose, Fall Guys, The Barnums of Bounce, there's a story of Lewis telling Marin Plastino that if he beat Lewis in a closed-door shoot match, he'd drop the title to him in a worked match, but if he lost, Plastino would have to put him over on the business side. In this story, Plastino was aging badly, as though Lewis wasn't, and needed the money Sandow could provide. Lewis, of course, beat him in the shoot, and Plastina put him over on May 28th and July 9th. There are a lot of problems with this book, because it is a muckraking, shit-talking expose that came out in the 30s, so the vibe of it is very, you know, the drunken uncle telling all the secrets at the bar, more about the sensational story he's telling than telling the actual truth, so I feel that Plastina's story is not 100% or maybe even 10% true. The legends of Lewis as an unbeatable shooter, Plastino not exactly being a top-notch shooter like Pesek, whom Lewis avoided after the double cross against Stetcher. So again, not exactly the material of the facts, the true story, however you want to put it. Because at this point, Lewis was getting old. Stetcher was out of the game again after dropping the title. Tootsmont was growing further and further away from the Sandow company. Wayne Munn had been exposed by Zabisco and killed flat by endless losses to Lewis. Vladik Zabisco was past his prime, and Stanislaus was ancient in wrestling years and couldn't be trusted if the title was on the line. Neither could Pesek after the Stetcher match in L.A. Londos was hot in St. Louis and Los Angeles, but the old guards saw him as an upstart that still owed them for making him a star. Philly and St. Louis were close to the Strangler. Chicago had an athletic commission cause problems for Sandow at every turn. New York insisted that Lewis had to prove his place as champion by beating Hans Stanky. Lewis had the title, but there was a big difference between holding the title and holding down the title, and was almost immediately back to the second option. And this is where we're going to leave things there towards the end of 1927. So we did have that big unification title. We did have the big match that everyone had been clamoring for for years. Yep. It lived up to the hype. It was everything everybody wanted. Built but the right way. It was built the right way. They did everything perfectly. But now the title and the power went back to Sandow. And Sandow thought it was still 1923. He still the rest. He still thought the wrestling world was the way it was under his rule in like 23, 24, 25, when it had moved on more or less without him. 
The power now was in the hands of the regional promoters. It was in the hands of the athletic commissions. And if he didn't want to play ball, well, guess what? That means most major markets are shut to you. You can defend the title in Alabama. Fuck you. We'll make our own stars here. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the only flaw in his game is that he has completely put all his eggs in that basket. When he fucked up with uh, with Toots, man, that was that was the move. He should have dropped it to Toots back in the day, and they would have been they would have never lost the ball. But now Toots on the outside. When Toots Toots is such an underrated creative genius because he was he played the big oaf and nobody knew his creative side contributions, and now he feels unappreciated for his work. He's about to fucking that. That's the wrong guy you want to piss off. Yeah, because in the end, it wasn't his in-ring losses or putting over the strangler that caused the problems. It was behind the scenes when Max Bauman, Billy Sandow's brother, started more or less taking his place behind the scenes. It was his ideas, his plots, his plans that were being rejected. And that's where his genius lay. Because Mont was starting to have injury problems. His in-ring years were very limited, but behind the scenes is where his future was heading and if he was being limited if he was being pushed to the uh, to the outside by the people he'd been working with for years well fuck you i'm gonna take my ideas and i'm gonna take them elsewhere and this is true of a lot of promoters because a lot of people are like why did sandow stick with with lewis for as long as he did well why did vince stick with hogan as long as he did fair so that's always going to be a problem it's change is always scary especially when trust is paramount he stuck with Lewis because he trusted Lewis. It's the same reason, like, you'll look at, like, the Von Erichs or the Gagne's, yeah. where the championship doesn't go to the people who should be champion who would sell the tickets. It goes to the lesser draw who could be trusted with the belt. And that's going to be a problem that's going to plague wrestling pretty much forever. And it was starting to become a big problem in the mid-20s. But that's going to be the end of this little chapter as we're going to go into late 28, 1929 next time. Because there are still some twists and turns. There is still some some drama, some drama on the table to be gobbled up by uh, the... Hippodrome Express by the Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Uh, man, what a wild ride so far, am I right? Dude, it's been insane. And now, with him, uh, with Strangler getting the belt back, a, a Strangler Lewis has been champion, a professional wrestling champion now. What, this is the f- almost four? Well, I guess it's still the 20s, but he's going on from original Strangler. We're talking about 30-year reign of a Strangler in the title picture. It can be argued that. But yeah, his imprint is huge, his imprint is important, his imprint is legitimate, but again, where do you go with it now? And that's yeah. what we'll talk about next time. Um, so yeah, so and for, the, for the time being, uh, you know, listen to our old episodes if you haven't. They're all bangers, I assure you. Could I steer you wrong? Of course not. If you're on social media, you know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. I like to post all the wacky headlines that I find while doing my research. And if you feel like this show is worth a dollar or two, my Venmo is in the description. Books and archive memberships are not free, but I would be doing this show for free no matter what because I am a lunatic. So we'll be talking to you next time. We'll be back with the next installment of this long-form story. And for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Arg. <laughs>